It's the 13th of December, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. In the future, you will be what you wear. I don't know if you've been keeping count on biosimilars, but there's quite a few of them out there. Do you know how many? And lastly, in those patients of yours who are weaning off their medicines or spacing it out or you're experimenting with how low can you go, do you know how to predict who's going to get worse? Because, you know, there is a subset that will get worse. There is a cost to be paid for trying to be on less medicine. Let's start with data from Caltech. Researchers there are developing a wearable sensor that will actually detect uric acid levels. I find this fascinating. I know that, you know, high tech is going to be all the rage in the future. You know, if you're a diabetic right now and you want to monitor your blood sugars, you wear a patch, you put your cell phone up to it. It tells you at at that moment what your blood sugar is. It monitors it either periodically or 24-7. You can, again, send that to your doctor. Imagine how that will be for your patients with other diseases like gout or lupus or rheumatoid. I think wearable technology is going to have a long future. Um, and I think that we should be aware of what's going to happen there. This is this uh, this Caltech tool the sensor is not yet available, but believe me, it will be soon. So lupus and smoking, do you think there's an association or not? Well, Jay Room has an article out that, that shows a meta-analysis of 12 studies and Almost 3,000 lupus patients compared 10 to 1 to normal control, showing that smoking is associated with a risk of lupus. However, it is only those who are active smokers. Former smokers, never smokers, don't seem to have a higher risk of developing lupus, whereas those who are active smokers seem to. Not surprising because, you know, bad stuff going into your lungs. There's all those accessory cells in those alveoli that are just waiting to do something right or do something wrong. And smoke induces a lot of the wrong things, as we'll talk about in a few more reports. An interesting report comes from South America that compares the outcomes and behavior of lupus in uh, five different cohorts that they have down there. And they look at um, those who are uh, patients who are of Latin American descent versus those who are European, Caucasian, and see if that influences how the disease is expressed. Well, it actually had no difference when it came to um, overall damage, um, mortality rates, comorbidities, but other features, it was different. So Latin American lupus patients tended to have more myositis, hemolytic anemia, uh, nephritis, uh, the bad autoantibodies of SM, Rho, RNP, and overall had more disease activity. Not surprising, other studies have shown similar types of behavior. I think this does speak to the fact that lupus probably is more than one disease. I don't know if that's a surprise to any of you, but the question is, is it two, three, five, nine? It remains to be seen, and maybe it is this factor that makes lupus hard to study in clinical trials. In RA, we tend to unify and homogenize our clinical trials by having patients who are generally CCP or rheumatoid factor positive. The same cannot be said by doing a serologic um, grouping, if you will, of patients with lupus. I think it's much more complex. Speaking of complex, the biosimilar stories, it continues to grow. The FDA has granted another approval this time for Amgen's infliximab biosimilar. It's called 
have Sola. It's infliximab-axxq. You know you need that suffix here in the United States. The rest of the world is laughing at us about that. They just go by the name of the biosimilar, Avsola. It's got the same indications as does Remicade and all the other um, um, three other infliximab biosimilars. This makes it the fourth infliximab biosimilar joining Inflectra, Renflex, Renflexus, and Ifixi. The question is, how many biosimilars are there? Well, I got the number. The number is there's 11 TNF biosimilars, 11 of them. Oh, my God. Um, and then how many for each one? There's five for adalimumab, there's four for infliximab, and there's two etanercept biosimilars. The overall number of biosimilars in the rheumatologic market is actually 13 if you consider the two uh, um, rituximab biosimilars that are out there. Um, and only one of them actually is approved for rheumatologic indications and none for rheumatoid arthritis. Only one, I think, Ruxima, not, tru not, not Truxima, but it's actually Ruxians, is approved for use in GPA. Overall, the numbers on new drugs and RA is astounding. There's 21 biologics that includes the biosimilars, and there's three new JAK inhibitors, maybe a fourth by next year. You've got 24 drugs to choose from in treating rheumatoid arthritis that were made after or approved after 1999. Oy vey. So let's move on and talk a little bit about um, what happens in osteoarthritis of the knee and revision knee arthroplasties. You know, some patients do consider the use of these unicompartmental or hemiarthroplasties. Um, they're done via the arthroscope. They're less invasive. Um, they're not as widely done, but they are novel, and you can be walking tomorrow on a brand new knee. They're usually like a medial compartment or a medial um, uh, unicompartmental uh, procedure. The question is, what's the long-term success? My, I actually looked at this when I had my knee replacements. I was not a candidate because I already had um, genuverum, and you need to have perfectly good alignment and also a perfectly talented orthopedist who actually does this kind of surgery. Uh, so it's really not for a lot of people. But when it is, it might seem work. It does seem to work. My people I know who've had it, it doesn't seem to work more, any more than five to ten years. And then you need a, a total knee. The question is, if you had a unicompartmental and you go on to knee arthroplasty, are the outcome the same? Well, an orthopedic journal looked at this and showed that those people have a medial unicompartmental um, procedure followed by a total knee that have actually have a threefold higher rate of further revision knee arthroplasties in that group, suggesting that there may be long-term uh, a downside to using the um, hemiarthroplasty, the mini procedure, if you will. So I don't generally recommend them, and then again, neither does my orthopedist uh, and the mavens who do orthopedic um, arthroplasties here in Dallas. An interesting report comes on the um, predicting who will relapse in those patients who are undergoing a drug withdrawal, trying to limit the amount of use, go from two drugs to one drug or spacing it out. Well, there are two studies that actually looked at this, the IMPROVE study and the RETRO study that were designed withdrawal studies to look at what happens. And as you would expect, you know, the more um, you withdraw, the worse they do. If you can just work with withdraw one drug, patients tend to do better. Again, the ACR guideline on this particular issue is if you are in low disease activity state, you don't withdraw anything. But if you're in remission, you can withdraw one or, of the drugs, but not all the drugs 
because again, patients will flare, there's a radiographic downside, et cetera. Anyway, in these two studies, they looked at predictors and they showed that serum calprotectin, um, an acute phase reactant, it's an S100 protein um, driven by um, the, the inflammasome and other things. Anyway, was actually predictive of those who are going to relapse. Uh, and it might be a useful tool. We're not doing calprotectins in uh, our clinics. You know, it's being used a lot to predict who ha who's, ha who's having an infection. Uh, it's being used in GI on calprotectin on, on, on stool, in stool samples to look at uh, inflammation in the gut. You know, it might be something we should expand our use to. Uh, some interesting data comes out of South Africa about TB rates. Now, the, the TB rate in South Africa is crazy high. It's TB land. I mean, they, they, the numbers are very different than the United States. The overall TB rate in the United States is about four cases per 100,000. You know, when you're in TB land, you know, places like Russia and uh, Southeast Asia, certain parts of South America, Central America, you know, it's 100, 200, 300. Well, it's like in that same range, 200, 300 plus in South Africa. And when they looked at, they have a biologics registry there, and they looked at the risk of developing TB amongst the patients who received biologics. Well, the numbers were very high. Um, the TB rate with biologic users was 1,240, 1,240 per 100,000. That's incredibly high um, compared to a, a very low number in of patients who had never received a biologic. Um, a third of these were uh, extra pulmonary, two thirds were pulmonary. These numbers were highest with monoclonal antibodies against TNF where the number was 1,683. Um, uh, half that number if you're using the receptor etanercept um, and uh, even lower, um, uh, about a third of that number if using another MOA. Again, saying that Patients who are, might be at risk of TB should probably not be getting the monoclonal antibody TNF inhibitors um, because that puts them at higher risk, especially if they're from countries where TB is a much higher rate than that's seen in the United States, Canada, Great Britain, and certain parts of Australia. So what about the risk of RA or even better, the risk of ACPA? Nurses Health Study actually does have um, some data, not just on diet, but even on uh, a lot of other features. And it looked at um, 284 incident cases of um, RA and matched them against controls and showed that uh, individuals who had asthma were at much higher risk of developing ACPA positivity, CCP antibody positivity, prior to the development of rheumatoid arthritis. And that was compared to controls. However, if you were an asthmatic and you, it did not necessarily increase your risk of getting RA. It just increased your risk of getting ACPA, which then later translated to a risk of RA. Again, speaking to the role of mucosal immunity, also the, the pulmonary microbiome. You know, uh, uh, Janet um, Pope has written about this this week in talking about RA and the risk of RA. You might look at that article um, uh, from this past week. So yet another drug has failed in osteoarthritis in the hands. In this case, it was an erosive OA study. Patients had to have four or more DIPs, PIPs, one of which had to be red and swollen or have an ultrasound evidence of synovitis. And they went ahead and they gave these people, actually not, they gave them IL-1 inhibition. And an, uh, an IL-1 inhibitor is not on the market called um, lutixamab, lutixamab. 
Lutuxum. So it doesn't really matter. It's not going to make it to the market, at least not for IL-1. This is a fairly large study, um, uh, 110 erosive hand OA patients who showed no difference um, compared to placebo when it came to pain outcomes, even though those that were on IL-1 had significant uh, biochemical changes with a drop in IL-1 and CRP and other inflammatory markers. So again, a big pile of drugs that have failed in OA and inflammatory OA, you know, all the DMARDs have failed, methotrexate, plaquenil, don't use it. You know, a number of biologics have failed. Nothing seems to work here. We do need an intervention. This erosive OA maybe accounts for as much as 4 million Americans in the United States right now. So we need more. Right now, what am I using? Acetaminophen in moderate to high doses, especially long-acting, 650 milligram acetaminophen, along with 2.5 milligrams of prednisone, along with immobilization of problematic joints. If you got a better option, study it or tell me about it. I'll give you credit. Speaking of hand OA, another study looked at prednisone use in hand OA. This was uh, actually in Lancet this past week. They tried to recruit 150, 60 patients. 112 patients were enrolled and either received placebo or 10 milligrams of prednisolone for six weeks. They followed the patients for another six weeks thereafter. And what they showed was during the six weeks of prednisolone therapy, guess what? Pain scores went dramatically down in those on prednisolone and not those on on um, placebo. However, when you stop the drug, pain re reverted back to normal with no differences between the groups. So what does this tell you? Well, you could use steroids. You could use steroids for short-term flares in um, OA, or you could do what I do, which is use a very low dose to try to chronically suppress inflammation in those problematic joints. Again, this is a very difficult area as far as treatment goes. Lastly, um, I don't know if you uh, have figured out what to tell your patients who want to know about CBD. It's really a mess. This is what I tell mine. I tell them I shouldn't recommend it because there's not a lot of good biologic evidence and there's no clinical trial evidence that it works. However, the experience of my other patients says that 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10 seem to think it does something. So there's a lot of buzz about this. I'm not against it. I'm against the cost of it. And again, I don't think not just known about the safety of this. Anyway, this past week, the FDA came out with a warning letter to 15 of the manufacturers of CBD products, basically saying cease and desist from uh, your ridiculous claims. They wanted to be very clear in saying that the FDA has not yet determined that canna cannabidiol or CBD is safe or effective. They've heard the hearings, they're going over a lot of things. You know, there are a lot of different preparations. It's taken a lot of different ways. There's a lot of safety signals out there. A lot of the products that are out there are actually illegally marketed and illegally made. But there is the potential of some toxicity here, including liver in injury, interaction with other drugs, drowsiness, diarrhea, changes in mood. Uh, animal studies show there's problems with testes and, and scrotum development and testosterone levels. So a lot is still not known. And I, I wouldn't be 100% behind this. I think you should warn your patients that, you know, they need to be judicious about this um, and they need to try other, maybe better proven remedies going forward. Anyway, that's it for this week at Room Now. Go to the website, check out these citations and others. Um, be sure to check out roomnow.live. We have Room Now Live happening in February uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th in beautiful downtown Fort Worth. We'll see you there. Take care.